All right, guys, we are here on week number eight, and uh, we're discussing the really the link from the Reformation all the way up to the First Great Awakening. We're discussing the developments that took place within those two centuries. The 16th century, of course, is the great century of Reformation. The 17th and 18th centuries are centuries of development that take place from the Reformation up until the Great Awakening or the Evangelical Revival in the 18th century. And that's really what we're discussing now is how is it that we go from Reformation to an environment in which revival is once again needed, in which a revival is once again necessary such that there would be a definable awakening in both England and in North America. And as we study that flow of history, we're going to uncover some very important developments along the way that explain a lot of why society in the West is the way that it is, why Western civilization has become what it has, what it has become. And we, we already started discussing those things on Tuesday, in particular the Enlightenment, and we're going to spend a little bit more time talking about that to, uh, today. So I realize we already started discussing some of these class notes on Tuesday, but we're going to just start at the beginning here and talk our way from Reformation to Revival. And uh, so we'll reiterate a few things that we talked about on Tuesday as we discuss the developments that took place after the Reformation and leading up to the Evangelical Revival, the first Great Awakening of the mid-1700s. So the early 1500s is the Reformation. 200 years later, we are in a state in which another revival is necessary, and God works a work of revival in that first Great Awakening it's what we call it here on the American continent. In England, it was known as the Evangelical Revival in the mid-1700s. The 1730s and 40s is when the First Great Awakening takes place. And then we'll start to speak of revivals in church history as awakenings, and we'll have a Second Great Awakening in the late 17, uh, really the 1790s, but it's the early 1800s that the Second Great Awakening takes place. And then people will talk about a third great awakening, and then some will even talk about a fourth great awakening. And depending on who you read, you'll have people today talking about the fact that we are even now in the midst of some sort of awakening, and it gets a little bit fuzzy as to who is defining the awakenings as we move into more modern church history um, if you read charismatic authors, for example, they'll look at the charismatic movement as some sort of a great awakening, and we might take issue with their definition of it at that point. But in any case, uh, the Reformation, in this class, of course, that's where we started. The Reformation stands as a great revival in the history of the church, and then 200 years later, at least in English-speaking church history, we have another great revival, and now we're connecting those two events in this lecture. We already looked at this map, but here you have a geographical representation of these reformed movements coming out of the Reformation. You remember when we talked about the Reformation, we have the establishment of a Protestant evangelical Christianity. I would say the word Protestant is a product of the Reformation itself because 
evangelicals were protesting certain things about the Catholic Church. The word evangelical, however, is not a product of the Reformation. It is true that Luther coined the term evangelical, but really all he did was Germanize the Greek term euangelion, which is gospel, and that term is as old as the New Testament itself. So I prefer the term evangelical in terms of defining what it is that we believe because that term encompasses the entire 2,000 years of church history. We are those who believe the gospel. It's a shame, of course, that in the contemporary evangelical movement, the term evangelical doesn't really mean anything anymore. And if you were to ask a typical non-Christian American secular citizen, uh, what is the term evangelical, he would probably more quickly identify it with a particular political ideology than he would with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in any case, the term evangelical is one that encompasses the entirety of church history, and it was those evangelical convictions relating to the gospel and to scripture that were recovered in the Reformation. We have here then the, those Protestant reformers divided into three or four groups in the Reformation, what we might call denominations, and they are divided primarily around either geographical places or around the ordinances. That's at least initially how they are divided, and so the Lutherans are divided from the Reformed uh, theologians, Luther from Zwingli over the issue of the Lord's table. And then the Anabaptists are divided from both over the issue of baptism. We have in England itself then reformed Christians uh, who make up the Puritan contingency within the Anglican denomination, I suppose we could call it, the Church of England. And of course, reformed Christians in Scotland known as Presbyterians. And so you start to see this geographical separation of these different groups. So as we move forward then from the Reformation, what happens in these different branches? And we already talked a little bit about the Lutherans, so this will be review. But after Luther dies and then after Melanchthon dies, as we talked about on Tuesday, we have the threat of schism within the Lutheran movement, the threat that this is going to splinter into many different branches, and it is then all brought together and solidified, harmonized with the formula of Concord and the Book of Concord, where 50 years after the Diet of Augsburg, two Lutheran theologians, Jacob Andrea and Martin Chemnitz, put together this book that really unifies Lutheranism. And it includes writings of Luther and Melanchthon. It includes ancient Christian historic creeds and... Lutheran churches that are historic in their confessionalism look back to the Book of Concord as one of the primary foundational documents of Lutheranism. Now, most Lutheran churches today are liberal. That's really true of most mainline denominations, but those who are orthodox and historic in their confessionalism look back to these kinds of documents. Uh, Martin Chemnitz, this is just an aside, Martin Chemnitz uh, second-generation Lutheran leader. I've mentioned his name before. He's known in Lutheranism as the second Martin of Lutheranism because you have Martin Luther, of course, the founder of the movement, and then Martin Chemnitz, a second-generation leader. 
Chemnitz actually wrote a very interesting treatise in which he defends justification by faith alone using nothing more than the church fathers to make his case. And I mention that only because we've spent some time, I think it was in first semester, looking at the early church fathers and their teaching on justification by faith alone, arguing that the Reformation did not invent anything new, but that it was indeed a recovery of something that was both biblical and historical, patristic. And uh, Chemnitz is one of those early leaders who brings that out. So this is not something that's new to Protestant evangelicalism. Reformation leaders themselves looked back to the early church fathers for what it was that they were teaching. We mentioned the fact that as Lutheranism develops, and especially because it is a state church, you have inevitably the decline into sort of a dead, dry orthodoxy. And so Lutheranism becomes nothing more than a collection of creeds and statements of belief and people assume that they're good Lutherans simply on the basis of their affirmation of certain doctrinal formulas. This dead orthodoxy then is reacted against by people who recognize that that's not all that Christianity consists of. Christianity, yes, includes right doctrine, but it also has to have an effect on how you live and how you think at the personal and applicational level. And so pietism develops as a reaction to this dead orthodoxy. Pietism then emphasizes genuine spiritual experience and inward heart transformation. So it's not just about mental assent to certain creeds and formulas. It's about a transformation of your heart and how you live. Problem is, pietism at times swings the pendulum too far to the other side as reactionary movements tend to do, and the result is that they downplay doctrine perhaps too much. And I think we recognize, though perhaps we're not saying that we're perfect in our recognition of these things, but we need to recognize that Orthodox Christianity consists of both, that we have right doctrine on the one hand and right living on the other. As Paul told Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. So both of those things need to be held in balance. That Christianity impacts, that the gospel impacts both how we think and what we believe and how we live. It impacts both our head and our heart. So for the most part, and we looked at this a little bit, you know, we mentioned... Uh, Philip Jacob Spainer, his pious desires, Johann Arndt, August Hermann Franck, and, and those other leaders of pietism. We mentioned even on, on Tuesday kind of these five emphases of pietism which are listed here. And for the most part, I think we would view pietism as a largely positive development in the history of Christianity there in Germany. Certainly the pietists... In particular, the Moravian movement under Zinzendorf, the, the Moravian movement had a significant impact on the conversion even of John Wesley. And, and so there's a lot of pietism that is expressed in the First Great Awakening, what in England is called the Evangelical Revival. And even some of the language of modern evangelicalism 
comes from that evangelical revival comes from the pietists. So the emphasis on the new birth, the emphasis on being born again. Are you born again? That language is really pietist language because it's not, you know, do you believe the creeds? It's have you been changed by the gospel? And, and certainly we would recognize that as being a very positive development, as being a very biblical development. I mean, that's John 3, Nicodemus and Jesus. Jesus saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. So, so for the most part, pietism represents a, a good reaction, but sometimes the pendulum did swing too far to where there's the downplaying of doctrine and sometimes also perhaps um, a little bit too much of a subjective emphasis on emotionalism, mysticism. Uh, so, so there can be that pendulum swing too far into the other side. History is helpful for us in that regard when we see these, a movement arise, uh, arises and then a reactionary movement arises and you do see that pendulum swinging back and forth. And uh, so much of it, is us looking back and we have the ability to look back without being directly involved in those situations, but we can learn the lesson of saying, you know what, reactions are often helpful, but you have to be careful not to overreact. And, you know, even in our own lifetimes, the whole emerging church movement, which I realize now is dead, sort of, um, I'm not sure it was ever fully alive, but the emerging church movement, it was a reaction to the seeker-sensitive church growth movement of the 1990s, really. And ironically enough, the emerging church pointed out, I think fairly, some strong critiques of what the seeker-sensitive, market-driven church growth movement, uh, sort of the yuppie church, what that had become. The problem is the emerging church came up with answers to those questions that were worse than even the thing that they were critiquing. You see that a lot, where there's identifiable critiques, something is wrong, uh, but then the pendulum swings in the other direction to such an extreme that, in some cases, the solution becomes worse than the problem. I'm not saying that about pietism, but I think there were some times in which the pietists allowed the pendulum to swing too far to the other extreme. All right, during this time, as we mentioned, there were two important historical events that took place. Really, uh, the one I want to focus on is the second. The Thirty Years' War is, I suppose, important from a military standpoint. It's important from the aspect of the fact that there were still conflict between Lutherans and Catholics in the Holy Roman Empire and Prussia at this time. But I really want to focus on the Age of Enlightenment. The Age of Enlightenment is arguably, or the Age of Reason as it's called, the Enlightenment itself, is arguably the most important event or series of events or development, whatever you want to call it, that has taken place in Western civilization in the last 1,000 years. Um, C.S. Lewis referred to the Age of Enlightenment as the Great Divide. And certainly we, you know, from a church history perspective, from an evangelical Protestant church history perspective, the Reformation stands out as really a a very important turning point in the history of the church. And that is absolutely the case. I mean, we spend 
a great deal of time in this class talking about the Reformation. But from a broader Western civilization standpoint, even more impactful than the Reformation is the age of reason, the development of the Enlightenment, because the Enlightenment transforms, and not in a positive way necessarily, but the Enlightenment transforms Western civilization at its core, such that 300 years later, 350 years later, as we look back on the Enlightenment, society has never been the same since the rise of the Enlightenment. Uh, in fact, I was, I was reminded, let's see, where, I, where, I, where did I put it? There we go. I was reminded of an article by Carl Truman, who teaches historical theology over at Westminster. And uh, this was an article in which he talks about how church historians are always cynical and pessimistic. And that's because they have seen everything tried at some point in church history from a human perspective and seen it fail. And um, so Truman's talking about how that pessimism is actually good for the church because church history gives perspective to all the new trends and fads that come along the way. Uh, I'm not quite as pessimistic, perhaps, as Truman is. And ultimately, of course, pessimism or optimism, the optimism for Christians comes from having our hope in the Lord and not in the different waves of development in different aspects of trends and those kinds of things. But in any case, I found this article to be really interesting and helpful because of what he says about history itself. Uh, because right here in these paragraphs, this is, by the way, this is an article on the um, Reformation 21 blog from April of 2011, if you're interested in looking it up. He says this, Enter the church historians any intellectual historian of any merit will tell you that the last 1,000 years in the West have only produced two moments of paradigm-shifting significance, and neither of them was the Reformation. That might be a slight overstatement, but it's got good shock value, and so I, I appreciate that. Um, I think the Reformation does have paradigm-shifting significance, but it would probably be third on this list of two. The first was the impact of the translation into Latin of Aristotle's metaphysical works. This demanded a response from the 13th century church. And he goes on to talk about how Aquinas uh, used really Aristotelian philosophy and Christianized it for the church. And then we have the introduction of uh, natural theology and some of the things that we talked about last semester. The second major moment was the Enlightenment. And so like the earlier Aristotelian Renaissance, this was a diverse movement, and he goes on to talk a little bit about that. Now, these two movements are not completely unrelated because in many, in, in many senses, I suppose, Aristotle's emphasis on the natural world and on human reason become really the two primary aspects or foundational pillars on which enlightenment thinking is, is itself built. And so there is an element in which the domino effect of Aristotle being translated into Latin produces not only a renaissance of the 13th and 14th centuries, but it lays the foundation for the rise of the enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries. Why is the Enlightenment so important? If we go back to 
our class notes here, the age of enlightenment. Why is the enlightenment so important? The enlightenment, and Truman uses the term of paradigm shifting significance. The enlightenment is important because it, it represents a shift in the authority by which people in Western civilization base their worldview. Now, when you take apologetics with Dr. Vlock, you'll spend a lot of time talking about authority structures and worldviews and presuppositions. Presuppositionalism, of course, is the idea that ev everything ultimately comes back to the authority structure on which a worldview is built. The touchstone, foundational principles on which you base the way that you view reality. Up to this point in Western history, at least since uh, Constantine's conversion to Christianity and the Christian Christianization of Rome, and then the Western European countries that grew out of that, the, the main authority structure has been, for lack of a better term, religion. And we might add to this religion and religious tradition. This is the authority structure of the Catholic Church. The medieval Catholic Church is, the way that they view the world is through the lens of starting with religious tradition as their authority structure. The Reformation comes along and Again, this is not something new, but the Reformation recovers revelation as the authority structure on which people ought to view reality. And, of course, I would argue, and I know that you would agree with me, that this is the only correct authority structure on how we view the world. So this defines evangelical, reformed, Protestant Christians. We are those who have divine revelation, the Word of God, as our sole authority. The Enlightenment, however, shifts to start to talk about human reason. So, we have the rise of what is called rationalism. Rationalism says that reason and Science are now the authority on which we view the world. And so you have René Descartes, who writes in 1637, I think it was, uh, his Discourse on the Method, in which he says that you can start with your own mind, or in Descartes' case, he started with his own mind. But you can start with your own mind, and using nothing but your own internal reason, you can then reason your way to the reality around you. So Descartes' famous line, I think, therefore I am, is the idea that I'm going to start with nothing more than my own thought processes, and from there I'm going to reason myself to the world around me. So human reason now begins to be the foundation on which people think about reality. Then you have Sir Francis Bacon, uh, who introduces and invents um, 
or develops, I suppose would be a better way to say it, the scientific method. And so John Locke in the early 1700s, late 1600s is one who begins to talk about empiricism and the empirical method as being really the only way in which we should view the world. And uh, really, the empiricism of Locke is more of a reaction to the rationalism of Descartes. And yet, in some ways, these two things are parallel. It's the idea that the authority for how we view the world is reason and science. And we still see that today. And the, the development, philosophically, the development of this uh, is going to lead to my marker's gone. It's going to lead to modernism. Modernism is the, really the optimistic, almost arrogant idea that using nothing more than human reason and science that humanity can figure out and solve all of the problems of this world. That's modernism. And uh, as a result, there actually have been many wonderful technological developments that have, you know, that we all <laughs> benefit from. And uh, they're all the result of that optimistic attempt to solve the problems of the universe uh, through discovery, scientific discovery, and through using your human mind. But this also in, in religion leads to um, a form of religion known as deism. Deism being the idea that there is a God, so it's not outright agnosticism or atheism. That sort of develops or becomes more popular later. But it's the idea that, uh, you know, the supernatural, miraculous, imminent God of the Bible is not the real God. The real God is a God who created the universe and set it in motion, the idea of a divine clockmaker, and now we have the ability through science and reason to figure out all of the intricacies of the divine laws, uh, the, excuse me, the natural laws, and, uh, and using nothing more than the empirical method and our own minds, we can solve all the secrets of the universe. Now, in our own lifetimes, you guys are seeing another shift that's taking place, which is a response to modernism, which is the recognition that even though we've been able to do a lot through science and reason, we haven't been able to actually solve the most basic problems that we face in this world. And it's giving way to what's known as postmodernism, which is the idea that maybe there aren't really the absolute answers that everybody thought there were when this all started. So initially, the optimistic approach of the rationalists, uh, there are some skeptics along the way, David Hume and others, but the rationalists are very optimistic that through science and reason, they're going to be able to solve the problems of our universe. And 300 years later, people are realizing maybe it's done a lot, but maybe it hasn't solved all the problems we thought it would solve. Enter postmodernism which is the idea that maybe everything's relative and maybe there aren't all these absolute things that we thought there were to begin with. Yep, Aaron. I've heard that postmodernism is, is on the decline. Do you have an opinion on that? 
Uh, is postmodernism on the decline? Well, yes and no, I suppose. I think in terms of certain elements within the postmodern framework, for example, the emerging church, which is really just, it really was just liberal Christianity for a postmodern generation. Um, I think there are certain elements within the postmodern mindset that are on the decline. But in terms of the postmodern premise, I think the postmodern premise is going to be with us for a long time, which is the idea that truth is relative, truth is, or, um, yeah, truth is relative, or at least the interpretation of truth is relative, so nobody can know anything for sure because those absolutes are all a matter of perspective. And so what's good for you is good for you, and what's good for me is good for me. I think at least at the street level, that concept, that approach to reality is going to be around for a very long time. But we'll see. Another movement that really develops alongside of rationalism and in some ways is a reaction to rationalism, but it's a secular reaction to rationalism because, let's face it, rationalism does a lot for your brain, but it doesn't do a lot for your heart and your soul. And so there is another movement called Romanticism. And Romanticism is the emphasis on feelings and emotion on beauty, art, music, poetry. And rationalism then develops as a separate and somewhat parallel, somewhat reactionary philosophical response to rationalism. Now, the church is going to be affected by both of these new philosophical movements, and the impact is not going to be a good impact, and we'll talk more about that as we go through the class. One of the things that's kind of interesting is, that we see here is up to this point in church history, philosophy as a subject matter has always been a subset of theology. Theology is regarded as the queen of the sciences, and philosophy is a subset, a handmaiden, so to speak, to theology. So even when Aristotle's philosophy or Plato's philosophy is brought in, and we talked about Platonism and Aristotelianism last semester, even as those philosophical constructs are brought into Western civilization, they are Christianized, and they are brought into the service of theology. But now with the Enlightenment, we have the rise and assertion of philosophy for philosophy's sake alone. So philosophy now becomes its own separate, its own separate science, its own separate endeavor. And so the rationalists, especially later generations of them, as scientists, Start, you start to talk about them as you know, secular humanists and non-Christian scientists. And we start to have now the battle between science and the Bible and between human reason and divine revelation. But this is really important for you to understand that it is a shift in the authority structure for how people view the world. And 
This shift still impacts our society today. Why is it that people reject certain things about Christianity, about the gospel, about the word of God? It is because they are basing their authority for how they live in science and reason, or sometimes in the subjectiveness of beauty and art, and their own, uh, I suppose, introspection, and they have rejected the authority structure of the scriptures as being the foundation for how they view the world. All right, so back to the notes then. After 1750, rationalism begins to overtake pietism. And by the way, the rationalists have an extremely naturalistic view of the world. I should probably add that as well, naturalism. Whereas the Bible has a supernatural view of the world, the rationalists have a very natural view of the world, naturalistic view of the world, which leads them to reject miracles, leads them to reject uh, biblical revelation because they begin to argue that miracle accounts are irrational. Maybe I should just pause here for a moment and make a comment. Uh, so you have rationalists like Voltaire, who says the Bible is going to be out of print within 100 years kind of stuff. And then you have Thomas Jefferson, who actually creates a version of the Gospels where he takes all the miracle accounts out because they don't fit within his deistic, rationalistic framework. Um, you even have uh, guys like Lessing, who argues that we can't know for sure what happened in history because the report of something in the past is not the same as the real thing. He applies that to biblical miracles and says the report of miracles doesn't mean the miracles actually happened. So you have a huge amount of skepticism that comes out of this enlightenment rationalism towards the gospel, calling all of the supernatural aspects in Scripture into question. And it's because supernatural events are outside of reason and science. I mean, let's be honest. The sun standing still, that's not something that science has a category for because that's not something that fits within the laws of nature, right? It's supernatural. It's extra natural. This attack against the Bible is going to continue. And um, in fact, the a lot of things are going through my head right now, but the, the birth of liberal Christianity with Schleiermacher is going to be a response on his part to what he believes are unanswerable attacks from rationalist skeptics towards the miracle accounts in the Bible. So he creates a new version of Christianity that he thinks is enlightenment proof. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about Schleiermacher. But this is the same thing that is going on still today. And I, I was just going to make this one little point. Uh, it always bothers me a little bit <clears throat> when, um, when evangelical Bible commentators, even today, when they feel the need to try and give naturalistic explanations for miracles in the Bible. 
Okay, so sometimes it's really bad when you've got liberal theologians who are talking about Christ feeding the 5,000 and they come up with explanations about how people shared their lunches to, to meet all those needs. Or you even have some who say Christ wasn't walking on the water, he was walking next to the water. And, you know, it's, it's an attempt to explain away the miracle in order to make it fit within a rationalistic framework. But even among sometimes evangelicals, you have people trying to argue that, you know, the, the river looked like blood because there was a lot of red algae in the water and that's what made it, you know, and <clears throat> these kinds of things. Or, or the, the Jordan River stopped because maybe there was some dirt that fell into the river up above where the Israelites were crossing and it created a temporary dam and they were able to cross. Um, or even the 10 plagues, maybe there were just a lot more locusts that particular season. Don't do that, okay? Just let me say it this way. Just don't do that. When you get to the miracle accounts in the Bible, just let them be supernatural. That's what they are. They're miracles. They are outside of science, and they are, they are unreasonable in the sense that they are not what normally happens in the course of what we see when we perceive the world and think about the way in which the laws of nature operate. But they are not unreasonable because God is above and outside of the laws of nature, and he can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. So it's not unreasonable when we recognize that revelation is our authority and science is not our authority. Science submits itself to revelation. Revelation does not submit itself to science. So even in ministry today, everything comes down to what is my foundational authority for how I view the world. If I allow science to be my foundational authority, I have succumbed to, in some way, the enlightenment, post or post-enlightenment commitment to rationalism and science as the highest authority. You see it most clearly among evangelicals in the issue of cosmology. Science says that the world is billions of years old and that evolution is the catalyst for the, I don't know, for the branches of all the different organisms that are alive today, whatever. But that's not what the Bible says. So the question is, at that point, what is my authority going to be? Is my authority going to be the Genesis account, or is my authority going to be the cosmological, um, I don't know, concoctions of modern evolutionary science? For me, the answer is very simple. I don't, need to, I don't need to study all the scientific data. I don't need to, it's not that I'm going to bury my head in the sand, but at the a priori level of foundational commitments, if your conviction is that the word of God is your authority, you're going to go with what the Bible teaches every single time. And you're going to then interpret the scientific data in a way that corresponds to the revelation of Scripture. If, on the other hand, your a priori commitment is to science, you will reinterpret the scripture to fit your scientific data. And that's exactly what you see going on today in the cosmological debates among evangelical scholars. So, just to simplify it for you, don't be fooled. Understand that ultimately it comes down to what is your authority. And it was in the Enlightenment that the shift among many people in Western civilization took place to where no longer was religious tradition or revelation their authority. Now 
human reason and science. Of course, when we talk about cosmology, we're not talking about real science anyway. We're talking about hypothetical science. Uh, real science, the scientific method, is perfectly compatible with what we see revealed in the scriptures. But you guys understand what I'm saying, right? Okay. So, two approaches that came out of the Enlightenment, the European rationalism of Descartes and the British empiricism of John Locke. And we've talked about both of those, but... Descartes attempted to understand reality by starting with his own reason. I think, therefore I am. And John Locke and other British empiricists thought that was ridiculous. Why would you start with yourself and reason outward? They started with the world around them and reasoned back to themselves. But in both cases, the growing autonomy of human reason was emerging. There was a new focus in philosophy as human reason became supreme in determining what people believed. And as those who live in a post-enlightenment society, this is still the defining factor in the people to whom we seek to reach with the gospel. Now, early scientists, uh, I think it's helpful to remember that many of the early scientists were devout Christians. Uh, but as this continues... The rise of science leads to a new way of conceiving the Christian faith. And this leads then eventually to deism, which does not deny the existence of God, but paints a far different picture than the biblical picture. And we're going to start to have discussions now in theology. And you're going to see this when you read that, that dreadful book that I assigned you, 20th Century Theology. Uh, you're going to see it in the debate between transcendence and imminence. And even Dr. Snyder talks a lot about that in his Theology One class. Transcendence meaning God who is above and outside of this world. Imminence meaning the God who is personally invested and working in this world. And the deists emphasize only the transcendence and deny the imminence, whereas the Bible teaches both. The reaction then to rationalism was romanticism, which emphasized emotion, intuition, and feeling. If the Enlightenment led towards deism, romanticism led towards pantheism. So now you have transcendentalism. You have Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson and others talking about being one with nature and all of this kind of mushy, gushy philosophy. And uh, so you start to have the, almost the deification of nature itself. Instead of the scientist or the cerebral philosopher, it is the artist and the musician who is an inspired vehicle of truth. And the effects of Romanticism can be seen then in Immanuel Kant and in Friedrich Schleiermacher. And we will talk more about Schleiermacher when we talk about liberalism, because we'll spend a whole class just talking about the development of theological liberalism. But essentially, as I already mentioned briefly, essentially Schleiermacher, when he encountered the, he grew up in a Lutheran family which would have emphasized revelation as the authority. But when he encountered the attack of rationalism, he felt like that attack was so strong that he, his belief, his faith was utterly shaken 
and he felt like he could no longer embrace the historical veracity of the scriptures, in particular, the historical veracity of those supernatural elements in scripture. And so he abandoned beliefs in, for example, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the resurrection. And he created a Christianity that was based in nothing more than feelings, romanticism, because he thought if there's one thing the scientists can't get to and the rationalists can't get to, it's the feelings that and the emotions that I experience when I feel completely dependent on God. And uh, so the birth of liberal Christianity is the shifting of the foundation on which your Christianity rests from biblical revelation to some other authority. And Schleiermacher was the first to do that, and so he's known as the father of liberal theology. So we'll, we'll talk about all of that a little bit later. But um, but I, I just think it's so important for you men to understand the fact that you have to settle in your heart before you even get into ministry. You have to settle in your heart that you are going to be committed to the authority of Scripture in every aspect of how you think and how you live and how you minister. And um, when you do that, these other authority structures, which represent a threat to that basic premise, um, you're going to be able to defend yourself against them. Uh, by the way, <clears throat> this is all leading to the really the the birth and articulation of fundamentalism, which is what we'll talk about a little bit later. Fundamentalism, which of course has a very negative connotation in most of the minds of modern Americans because of the way that the term is often used. Fundamentalism is more often applied to Islamic radicals than it is to anything else today. Within Christian circles, fundamentalism is often associated with people who kind of froze a 1950s morality structure and therefore don't go to movie theaters and don't allow beards and, um, and other things. But just to, um, I realize that's a bit of a stereotype. It is a stereotype, but it's the stereotype that exists in the minds of many people when they think about fundamentalism. I just want to help clarify for you that historically fundamentalism had nothing to do, certainly nothing to do with Islam, and nothing to do with a 1950s morality structure. It had everything to do with committing yourself to the fundamentals of the faith. And what were those fundamentals? The fundamentals were belief in the supernatural aspects of divine revelation. So belief in things like the virgin birth, why is the virgin birth a fundamental of the faith? Because it is specifically a supernatural event in Scripture that the rationalistic liberals, skeptics, attacked as being false. A belief in the miracles of Christ. Well, why is that a fundamental of the faith? Because that was what was under attack. A belief in Christ's substitutionary atonement. That was under attack by the skeptics and the rationalists. A belief in the resurrection and a belief in the return of Christ. These are the fundamentals of the faith. What makes them fundamentals is the fact that they are the supernatural elements of the gospel. Rationalism wanted to keep the moral elements of the gospel because isn't it great these people are good citizens. They're ethical, they're moral, 
They're kind and gracious. They look at Jesus' death as, you know, the moral atonement theory that, um, or excuse me, the the moral theory of the atonement, the idea that Christ died just as a good example of self-sacrifice. But they neutered the gospel of any supernatural or saving element, and the fundamentalists were willing to stand against that. All right, so we'll, we'll get to all of that, but I just think this issue is really, really important. Shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about what happened in Reformed circles in this 200-year period. Calvin gave the Reformed movement the doctrinal character it needed after Zwingli died. And uh, Theodore Beza then succeeded Calvin. And, And Beza is largely credited with establishing Reformed scholasticism. The Reformed scholastics emphasized scripture, tradition, and reason, but this is reason subjected to revelation. Uh, Maybe I should clarify that again. As an evangelical Christian, I appreciate science. I appreciate reason. I appreciate art, beauty, music. I appreciate nature. And we should all appreciate all of those things. But they must be subjected to the final authority, which is revelation. So the issue is not that these things were emphasized in these other movements. The issue is that they were viewed as the final authority for how to view life and how to view the world. Even church tradition. I don't have a problem with church tradition either, as long as church tradition is subjected underneath the authority of revelation. All right, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Synod of Dort, Two very important doctrinal statements in the history of the Reform Movement. In France, the followers of John Calvin were known as the Huguenots. They were greatly persecuted, did not fully gain their freedom until the French Revolution. In the Netherlands, the Reform Movement really took hold. The Dutch Reformed Church resulted. And this is important. It was in the Netherlands that covenantalism was systematized. Uh, I think it's, it's helpful for us to recognize the fact that covenantalism, covenantalists generally accuse dispensationalists of believing something that is only 200 years old. That's, I've heard that from time to time, that dispensationalists believe something that's only 200 years old in terms of the system of dispensationalism. The irony is that in reality, covenantalism and dispensationalism both arose in church history at about the same time, in the 17th century. Covenantalism is really not any older than dispensationalism in terms of a system. The system of covenantalism arose under Johannes Cosius and Hermann Witsius in the 1700s. And it was also in the 1700s that dispensationalism really started to be articulated. Now, it was John Nelson Darby in the 1800s who popularized it, but he was not the inventor of the system in terms of developing it. There were some English theologians before him who really began to develop dispensationalism. Um, ultimately, these systems are, I suppose, helpful in, in aiding Christians to understand the Bible in its full scope. Obviously, I'm very committed 
to the dispensational system over against the covenantal system because I think covenantalism is a logical system but not a biblical system. And I think dispensationalism is a biblical system. I think it's also logical, but it subjects the logic to biblical revelation rather than subjecting the biblical revelation to logic, some of the things we've already been talking about. But from a historical standpoint, I just want you guys to understand that covenantalism is not any older than dispensationalism in spite of what covenantalists claim. Moreover, as we already saw, premillennialism versus amillennialism, which is of course the eschatological ramifications of the covenantal versus dispensational systems, Premillennialism was the historic view of the early church, not amillennialism. Amillennialism was developed later around the 4th century where it really began to be popularized by Augustine and others. It was the medieval view. So if you want to argue the church history side with your amillennial covenantal friends, I think you actually have a lot more ammo than perhaps you think. Yep, Jared. It took so long for covenantalism and dispensationalism to be systematized. Uh, well, I think because in some ways these are um, I, look the the some of the basic principles behind these systems have been around for a long time. So it's not that the the building blocks of the system were developed in the 17th or 18th centuries. Obviously, um, these are just attempts to get your arm around the, the big picture of what God has been doing in the world. A covenant of works, a covenant of grace, a covenant of redemption, or uh, these various epics or dispensations of time in, in the way in which God has been interacting with his people. So, I think it's it's mainly the systemization of these building blocks that that develop later, and and probably largely due to the um, to the Reformation that these are post-Reformation developments that maybe wouldn't have been possible within the constructs of medieval Roman Catholic thought. Another important development that takes place during this time is the development of the five points of Calvinism. Now, we've talked about John Calvin. Calvin taught, I would argue, Calvin taught all five of the five points of Calvinism. There are some people who would argue about limited atonement and Calvin. I No, I think Calvin was definitely someone who taught limited atonement in the sense, certainly, that at the very real level of actual souls going to an actual place, that Christ's atonement is limited in its application and we would certainly all agree with that, otherwise we're universalists, and I know none of you are. But the, the systemization of those five points uh, was not something that started with Calvin. It was not something that even came out of Beza. It was something that came out of the Synod of Dort in the early 1600s in the Netherlands as a reaction to the rise of Arminianism. In opposition to the supralapsarianism of the Dutch Reformed, Arminius began to emphasize what was known as infra or sublapsarianism. Now, in order to explain this, I've decided to go to a very authoritative source called Wikipedia. Um, but they have a 
they have a helpful chart and uh, sometimes charts can be the most helpful in um, identifying some of these things. So I, I, I think you can kind of see that chart there. Superlapsarianism, or sometimes called antilapsarianism, is the idea that God, in terms of the logical order of the divine decrees in eternity past, and this is logical order, not chronological order, because we're dealing with a time in which there was no time, so even to refer to it as a time is incorrect. So we're in eternity past, the logical order in which God determined to do things. There's a sense in which this is all hypothetical, but this is what the argument was about. Did God first decree, I'm going to save some, and then I'm going to condemn some, and that means that I need to create them, and so did the decree to save some and to condemn others, did that occur first before the decree to create the elect and the reprobate, and then the decree to authorize the fall. That's superlapsarianism. This logically leads to double predestination. Arminius reacted strongly against this superlapsarianism of the Dutch Reformed, and so he taught infralapsarianism or sublapsarianism or postlapsarianism, which is the idea that God chose to create and then God authorized the fall, and then God decreed to save some and to allow others to be condemned. In Arminius's view, he actually had God looking down the hallways of time and seeing who would respond to the gospel of their own free will, and then God basing his decree on that human response. And that's the real issue, is Arminianism puts the onus and really the credit on a person's response to the gospel rather than giving all of the credit to God for electing a person who would have never responded to the gospel unless God had taken the initiative. Uh, so I think that's the real issue, even though the way that Olson frames the debate and the way that perhaps historically the debate has been framed, it regards these lapsarian views. Okay? So if we go back to the class notes, in opposition to the superlapsarianism of the Dutch Reformed, one Dutch theologian, Jacob Arminius, uh, Arminius is the Latin form of Hermanson, if you're interested, and Jacob, of course, is the same as James, so it's James Hermanson, Jim Hermanson is the one who came up with this. Um, no, Jacob Arminius <coughs> uh, opposed really the teachings of Theodore Beza and then the teachings of the Dutch Reforms. He, he dies in 1609. His followers present what they call the Five Articles of Remonstrance. And these five articles note their disagreement with Reformed scholasticism. It's not really Arminius versus Calvin, because Arminius was only three years old, I think, when Calvin died. Arminius was responding to people who were systematizing certain aspects of Calvinistic thought and perhaps stating it in ways that Calvin himself wouldn't have even stated it. These five articles of remonstrance, then, are that against total depravity, so against total depravity, they were teaching that man is able to save is, is able of himself to exercise saving faith. And that is the real problem with Arminianism, the emphasis on man's free will. 
Against irresistible grace, they taught that God's grace can be rejected. Against, again, it's human free will. So man of his own free will can choose the gospel, and man of his own free will can reject the gospel. Against limited atonement, that the atonement was unlimited in its intention. Against unconditional election, that divine predestination is conditional based on God's foreknowledge of man's response. Again, God looking through the hallways of time to see who of their own free will will respond, and then God basing his election on man's initiative. Um, Certainly is not the monergistic uh, way in which um, I think Scripture presents election. And then against the perseverance of the saints, uh, they taught that it is possible for believers to fall from grace and lose their salvation. Uh, And there still is, even in America today, uh, a group of free will Baptists, a denomination of Baptists, the free will Baptists, who would very much, I think, fall in line with these five points of remonstrance. And you have guys like Roger Olson and others who write books in defense of Arminianism. Though the Arminianism of most Americans has been modified a little bit because John Wesley was an Arminian, and Wesley kind of modified Arminianism into what is called evangelical Arminianism, which is just a little bit different than what Arminius and his followers initially articulated. So Arminius dies in 1609. Arminius taught that there was a preventing grace, a prevenient grace, in which God um, forestalls the effects of depravity so as to give sinful fallen men the ability at that point in time when they are confronted with the gospel, the ability to actually exercise free will. Um, This, of course, goes against what Luther wrote in The Bondage of the Will and what Calvin and the other reformers taught, that mankind is so depraved that he will always reject the gospel unless God intervenes. Arminius taught that there was some level of intervention, but it wasn't at the level of actually drawing the sinner to saving faith. It was more at the level of giving the the sinner the option of choosing or rejecting. The reformed position had been adopted by the state in the Netherlands, and so Arminius' followers were persecuted and exiled. And it's at this point in the early 1600s that many of them go to England. They, Im, uh, they impact the English Anglican Church, and you have more persecution against the Puritans in England as a result of that influence during the reign of Charles and under the influence of William Laud. So Arminianism condemned, Calvinism firmly espoused at the Synod of Dort, and it is at the Synod of Dort then that there are five pronouncements which are given in response to the five articles of remonstrance, and those five doctrinal formulations, when translated into English, give us the acronym TULIP. So TULIP comes from the Synod of Dort, as the Synod of Dort reacted to Arminius because Arminius had reacted to sort of the hyper-Calvinistic supralapsarianism of some like Beza and the Dutch Reformed, which perhaps is not quite an accurate reflection of what Calvin himself actually taught. So TULIP then, total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints, is this... Um, doctrinal formula that comes to us in English from the Synod of Dort in 1619.
Now, don't get me wrong. I think there is biblical justification for all five of those points, as long as those five points are explained and articulated in a biblical way and not in the way that, um, well, I'll just stop there, in a biblical way. Uh, So I have no problem claiming all five points. Uh, The English Reformation. We talked at length about the English Reformation, so we don't need to spend a lot of time on this. In fact, let me skip over that section on the English Reformation. Um, Setting the stage for the Great Awakening, we've talked about some of the philosophers in England like John Locke and David Hume. John Locke, the empiricist, David Hume, the skeptic, all of this an attack on biblical Christianity. And... uh, The net result of this philosophical uprising in England is that we have a great deal of spiritual decline. And uh, this spiritual decline sets the stage for a revival in England, which takes place in the 1720s and 30s, involving Whitfield and the Wesley brothers. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the evangelical revival. On the American continent, just in the five minutes that we have left, we have, of course, the establishment of Puritanism from the Mayflower and from the Great Migration Puritans who came over the 1620s and the 1630s. We have the establishment of American universities. Harvard is established in 1636. Uh, Yale won't be established until 1702. These are schools of divinity. These are schools that train pastors in addition to training others from a distinctly biblical worldview. These are Puritan Christian universities. And of course, they become secularized in the later centuries. The initial generation of Puritans in New England was very devout and fervent, but subsequent generations lacked the conviction of that initial generation. And soon spiritual indifference apathy and lethargy began to set in. In 1643, we have Solomon Stoddard, the grandfather of Jonathan Edwards, who was born. He becomes a pastor of one of the largest churches in Massachusetts, the second largest city in Massachusetts, Northampton. He holds that post for 55 years. So he is really a stalwart, a pillar of Puritan pastoral leadership. Stoddard notices that there is this growing spiritual decline in New England during this time. And uh, he and some of the other Puritan leaders begin to realize that if they don't do something to sort of make a compromise for people to still be involved in church life, that uh, they're, they're going to lose a lot, of, a lot of people coming to their churches. And so Stoddard is generally credited with developing what was called the Halfway Covenant. The Halfway Covenant allowed people who had not, uh, you know, it's infant baptism, so everybody's baptized into the church, but uh, conversion is something that the Puritans recognize takes place later and is kind of this process. The Halfway Covenant allows essentially unconverted people to be members in the church. 
And uh, Stoddard actually saw it as somewhat of an evangelistic thing because he, he thought the best way to evangelize some of these people was to get them into church. And the only way to do that was to make them members of the church. And so he thought this halfway covenant would actually be a good thing, but it leads to some pretty sticky situations for his grandson, Jonathan Edwards, who begins to realize that maybe people who aren't saved shouldn't be members of the church. Um, so, so all of these developments are taking place then over this period of time. In, in Lutheran circles, it's the dead orthodoxy responded to by pietism, but then the whole thing is engulfed in the Enlightenment. And in the Reformed circles, it is this Reformed scholasticism, which perhaps takes logic a little bit too far, and then a reaction against it, the birth of Arminianism, a reaction to Arminianism, the five points of Calvinism. And we still today have Calvinistic versus Arminian debates that go all the way back to the Synod of Dort in the 16, 18, 16, 19 period. In the English Reformation, we've talked about that, the birth of Puritanism, Puritanism coming across to America. But within both British and American Puritan circles in the early 1700s, it's the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment has so engulfed the church in skepticism, in deism, and um, really in all sorts of things that there is a desperate need for the Word of God to be recovered once again. There's a desperate need for another revival. And that new revival is what we call the Great Awakening. And it is, this won't shock you, but the Great Awakening, the secret of the revival in the Great Awakening is the same thing as the secret of the revival in the Reformation. It is a, once again a recovery of this as the authority in people's lives. And as the Word of God is once again preached powerfully through Whitfield, through Wesley, through Edwards, people get saved, and the result is revival. But why do we need revival? Because of, really, the onslaught of rationalism and romanticism.